This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. Poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, September the 5th, 2010. A little later in the show, 12.30 to be exact, we'll open up the lines and we'll do a half hour of spine-tingling tales. If you've had an encounter, an experience with the paranormal, supernatural, just plain weird. Speaking of which, did you see William Shatner's... uh, the premiere of his new program. He has three, no fewer than three new shows coming on uh, line. Not bad for a uh, an 80-year-old uh, man, but William Shatner's Is That Weird or What uh, debuted on the History Channel last week. Not bad, not bad. Uh, some of the things that he's talking about on that, that show, we address from uh, time to time on this program. And... Uh, Spine Tingling Tales is a wonderful vehicle for those those types of stories. Again, if you've had an experience, preferably firsthand, with the supernatural or the paranormal, we'll take your call at uh, 1230. Right now, we're going to welcome an author researcher to discuss the science of the lost civilization of Atlantis and its connection to the prophecies of the Maya in the year 2012. Now, this is based on more than 25 years of research around the globe and also statements from the sleeping prophet, the great Edgar Cayce, about Atlantis and its specific sister civilization, Lemuria. My guest reveals in his new book, Atlantis in 2012, The Science of the Lost Civilization and the Prophecies of the Maya, that the Mayan calendar was brought to Mexico by survivors of Atlantis. It's a great pleasure to welcome back to the program 
Frank Joseph, former editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine from 1993 until 2009. He's the author of Advanced Civilizations of Prehistoric America, The Destruction of Atlantis, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, Survivors of Atlantis, The Lost Treasure of King Juba, and his latest, as I mentioned, Atlantis and 2012. Frank Joseph, how are you? Welcome. Pretty good, Richard. Thank you very much for having me back. I, uh, actually, we had a, a visitor over to our house this evening who just returned from Greece, and uh, part of her trip, uh, this was a cruise, they went to uh, Santorini, and of course they take the, uh, the cruise around the remnants of that, uh, you know, that volcano that erupted, and, and, and uh, all that remains of... Uh, Santorini or a, a few islands and the, the the big one in the middle, the circular island, sank. And some people uh, have long believed that that was, in fact, Atlantis. And, of course, we hear about uh, fairly recent discoveries off, uh, off of Cuba. First of all, before I get your take on where Atlantis was, what did Edgar Cayce uh, say about Atlantis? Where did he think it was? Well, Edgar Cayce uh, spoke about Atlantis as being a very old civilization that lasted uh, over thousands of years. And during the course of those thousands of years, Atlantis went through several periodic catastrophic events. And that has kind of confused it for modern researchers who say, oh, this is a, the final destruction of Atlantis was 10,000 years ago, or it happened 2,000 years ago, and so forth, under different circumstances. And they're all just seeing different parts of the elephant, as it were. And that applies also to its location, Santorini, this island in the Aegean Ocean, Aegean Sea. It's just one of dozens of locations that researchers over the years have tried to assign Atlantis, and all these people are right. <laughs> uh, what it amounts to is Atlantis was not only a very venerable civilization, but also spread out over much of the globe. It was the first global civilization, and so these places that are being assigned to Atlantis are, for the most part, outposts or places that were touched by this worldwide civilization. But for someone to say, oh, Santorini is the one and only place, or Cuba or so forth, that's when they appear to go wrong. They only have a, a part of it. You have to be a little bit more objective, stand back, and see that this was a huge uh, political undertaking um, that uh, touched many parts of the world. Where did the name Atlantis come from? Is that a, a, a recent designation? I mean, if there was an Atlantis, uh, did the people, that the occupants of this, I don't know if we call it a nation-state, but of this area, did they call themselves Atlanteans? Or who, who came up with the name Atlantis? The name Atlantis is Greek, and it means daughter of Atlas, or literally daughter of the mountain. Um, in all my years of research, far too many that I care to remember, um, they, Atlanteans appear to have called themselves by something close to Aps because the name Aps, Atlantis, Aslan, different parts of the world referring to the same place, have that uh, prefigurative A-T, At. And we're, in my research has taken me that name At, or that prefigurative name At, usually refers to a mountain in the sea, a kind of island uh, mountain. And Atlantis, that's Greek. In uh, the Latin countries, it's called Atlantida. Uh, the uh, Egyptians called it Atalanti. They're all very similar 
But uh, we don't know exactly what they call themselves, no, because they are a lost people, a lost civilization. But something like apps, that's all we know. The word Atlantis is Greek. Now, was there, just to clarify, uh, because you mentioned that that, uh, Santorini may have been one outpost off of Cuba, or Bermuda may have been another. Uh, So are you saying that the Atlantean civilization was spread out around the globe, or was there one central sort of island landmass that that sank and there were remnants elsewhere around the globe? Well, that's quite correct. As a matter of fact, Plato, in his two dialogues, uh, Timaeus and the Critias, tells us that. By the way, I, I erred in that. The, we have the, the Greek name Atlantis. That's the way it is in English. In Greek, it's really Atlantikos, to be technical about it, but Atlantis is, is Greek. Uh, there was a, uh, a central island, according to Plato, in his dialogues. He tells us that the main island was called Atlas, and that is, of course, the Greek mythological figure of a giant holding the sphere of the heavens on his shoulders. Over time, people have misconstrued that as Atlas uh, holding the globe of the earth on his shoulders. That's wrong. It was always supposed to be the zodiac or the sphere of the heavens on his shoulders. And Atlas was a kind of a mythological figure that stood for the great central mountain out at sea, and that in periods where the clouds were of low cover, it looked as though the, the mountain was holding up the sky, and that's where this mythological uh, construct came from. And it would appear, yes, most definitely, that this island, we're not talking about a continent now. There's no evidence for a continent having sunk into the North Atlantic. However, there is great oceanographic evidence for quite a few islands, sizable islands, the size of Rhode Island and larger, that have sunk into the sea all at once. And the one specifically that we're looking at is about 220 miles due west of the Straits of Gibraltar today. There is a sunken island in that area. And uh, when science finally gets around to investigating it, there's a very good chance they might find some particular artifacts that will identify that sunken island as belonging to the lost civilization of Atlantis. Frank Joseph, author of Atlantis in 2012, The Science of the Lost Civilization and the Prophecies of the Maya. How do you respond to uh, the skeptics who say that uh, when when Plato was writing about Atlantis, it was merely a fable, uh, that Plato was using the story of Atlantis to make a point? Well, that's correct, actually. Plato didn't uh, was a philosopher, and he didn't stop writing philosophy to all of a sudden start writing history. And if you're familiar with Plato's works, very often he will use a historical event to illustrate a philosophic point. And that is no different in his two dialogues about Atlantis. He is talking in the Timaeus and the Critias about what happens to civilizations, why they self-destruct, why they seem to go into cycles. And Plato believed that what happens with a great civilization is that its people become too wealthy, too self-indulgent, and they lose sight of the values that brought their society into existence by being too selfish and materialistic. And he used the story of Atlantis as a true story to illustrate that point. Now, that is a very important point that brings up the credibility of Plato's story of Atlantis, because if Atlantis was not true, if Atlantis was understood as a mere fable, it would fail to illustrate his point, you see. 
His main point was to show that civilization self-destruct through uh, materialism and through uh, militarism, uh, out-of-control militarism, and that is exactly the story of Atlantis, which was a very great place, but he says that it went into a period of decline, and after it had gone into a period of decline, it was destroyed, and that he tries to show that the same thing happens to any civilization which sins against the forces that brought it into existence in the first place. All right, when we come back, uh, Frank, we'll talk about the legends uh, surrounding Atlantis, and you can uh, separate truth from fiction. I'm speaking specifically about the tremendous technology that was said to exist in the Atlantean civilization. We'll find out if, in fact, they did have advanced technology and get Frank to tell us all about what that technology actually was. The Conspiracy Show, back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Frank Joseph is here. The book is Atlantis in 2012, The Science of the Lost Civilization and the Prophecies of the Maya. Uh, Frank, uh, Ad- Ad- Atlantis uh, is believed to have taken technology to a very advanced stages, even beyond what exists on our planet today. Uh, what can you tell us about the, some of the, the technological advances of the uh, Atlantean civilization? Well, I would say, first and foremost, their most cogent um, invention or scientific achievement was that of the calendrics. And what, as we understand as the Mayan calendar, is something that was bequeathed to the Mayan people by survivors of the Atlantean catastrophe. Now, this is not something that is just a ridiculous theory or made up or a fantasy by any means. The Maya themselves told that they received their high science from survivors of a catastrophe far out at sea. And this tradition, it's not a story, this is something that is the founding myth of a very great civilization that we have to have respect for. I'm referring to the Mayan civilization. For all of the faults of the Mayas, and of course they were eventually, uh, they did a lot of faults, they were into human sacrifice and terrible things, but they also had great achievements, of course, in architecture and mathematics and especially calendrics. And they were a part of something called Mesoamerican civilization. That's how, how archaeologists refer to all of the high civilizations of Mexico and Middle America. After the Maya came the Aztecs, not immediately afterwards, but they're after them. And before the Maya, there were the Olmecs. And all these different high civilizations were part of what they call Mesoamerica. And every one of these high cultures, without exception, the Aztecs, we don't know about the Olmecs because... Uh, they go way far back. We know about the Maya and the Zapotecs and the rest of them. They all talk about how their great art and science was bequeathed to them by someone called the Feathered Serpent. The Aztecs called him Quetzalcoatl. The Maya called him Kukulkan. 
which means the same thing, the feathered serpent. And it refers to a kind of a headgear, apparently, that this fellow wore. That he and his followers arrived from a place far across the Atlantic Ocean. This is their story now. This is not anything we are making up. And that when the civilization was destroyed in a great storm and lost at sea, the feathered serpent and his followers, his family and sorcerers and so forth, arrived on the shores of Yucatan, and they shared their high science with the native peoples, and that the Mesoamerican civilization, the Olmecs, the Mayas, and so forth, are a hybrid civilization of these newcomers who shared their technology with the native people. And that's why you get a rather unique-looking civilization starting up over here, but it's somewhat similar to what we find in Egypt you know, with pyramids and so forth. There's some similarities, but some important differences, and that's because both Egypt and the Maya civilization were inheritors of the Atlantean culture bearers. Now, that's really interesting because the Maya themselves, who developed this extremely advanced calendar that we're talking about, that the mathematics involved in it are just mind-boggling that a supposedly pre-literate people could have come up with something like this. Well, the Maya themselves say that all they were were the stewards and the caretakers of this great technology that was entrusted to them. They elaborated on it. They built upon it. The best way to understand the Maya calendar is something that was inherited by a previous civilization. And the best way to envision the Mayan calendar, or the, actually the Mesoamerican calendar, is to think of something called the Aztec calendar stone. And it's a very famous object, of course. It's this great disc with this rather hideous face in the middle of a, uh, a sun demon, as it were, with his tongue sticking out and human hearts on his tongue. Um, but it's very uh, complex mathematics and symbols and hieroglyphs all around. And that Aztec calendar stone is, in fact, uh, a variation and an enhancement of the Maya calendar. Basically says the same thing. What this calendar does, it's a, really an almanac. It's not really a calendar in the sense that we understand it. It's a device for going backwards and forward into time. I know, it's uh, really a mind-blowing experience to really get into the Mayan calendar, and I can't do too much of it tonight because it's very complex. I get into, into it in my book. I try to simplify it. But the so-called Mayan calendar or the Aztec calendar stone is a work of high genius, great mathematics, which goes backwards and forwards into time. It goes backwards into time, and it tells about these four great catastrophes. This is what the Maya and the Aztecs said happened in the past, that there were four global cataclysms which reduced human beings to a very low level of savagery and in numbers. Well, this is hardly anything made up because science now recognizes that there was something called the Toba event. It happened 75,000 years ago. It's the world's largest known volcanic explosion in Indonesia. And when that erupted, uh, human beings at that time, there were it's estimated there were about 2 million human beings at that time. Some were Homo erectus and others were uh, very early Homo sapiens. But nonetheless, about two million human beings at that time. There were modern men around then. But the Toba event reduced human beings. The human population, it's now known through the DNA fing fingerprint, 
to possibly as little as 10,000 or 2,000 people. So we're all... survived that event. We're all descendants of the Toba survivors. We are all descendants of the Toba survivors, because before that Toba event, there was tremendous species diversity, tremendous amount. There were many different types of humanoids around. But after that, they were all wiped out, except for Homo sapiens. We are the direct descendants of that. Well, apparently the Maya are actually referring to an event like that. They said there were four like that that reduced human beings to really low level. Human beings had to come back after this. Basically what the Maya calendar says is that the last event of this kind was the Great Flood. We refer to it as the Atlantean Flood. Matter of fact, because the, the Aztecs themselves referred to this great global flood as for atl, A-T-L, which to them means water, interestingly enough. They refer to it as for, because it's in the four cardinal directions. It means it was global. Well, in any case, this last great catastrophe uh, from which the feathered serpent arrived on the shores of Yucatan to deliver his technology, the Maya calendar, the same calendar says that the next major event is scheduled to begin on the sunrise of the winter solstice, R-2012. And they say that this is an event which will be very bad. Uh, that Aztec calendar stone that I referred to, which shows the sun demon in the middle there, and the sun in his very destructive aspects, it indicates what the Maya said is going to happen on that day, to begin to happen. They said that there's going to be trouble with the sun, that there will be a... They were not specific. They said that um, the sun demon, they referred to him as Bolon Yocte, will descend with his nine servants and ravage the earth. We don't know exactly what that means. That's, of course, a mythological language, uh, trying to say that something bad is going to happen. Now, when I first read about this, I wanted to find out, well, what exactly could go wrong? Of course, there are now numerous books out and a lot more to come on what's going to happen in 2012. I recommend that our listeners read them all. They're all interesting. Uh, some of these books say that we're going to go through a new millennium. Everything's going to be peace and love and harmony in 2012. Others say that it's going to be the end of the world and so forth. Now, I wanted to know what the Maya really said about 2012, and why would they be correct about that? Why would they, cho why would they choose that specific date? Frank, let me, just get that, you to, let me just get you to hold oh, yeah. on to that thought. Sure. We'll, we'll take a time out when we come back. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious about this, because my understanding is that for years, the, um, the Mayan uh, council, I guess there is sort of an eld uh, a Mayan elder council that uh, exists to this day, and they've been very quiet uh, about 2012 until fairly recently, uh, and there's some discussion about what they in fact said. So we'll find out what do the Mayans today actually uh, believe the long count Mayan calendar says about the winter solstice in 2012 and what's about to... Uh, to befall the inhabitants of this planet? Frank Joseph, the author of Atlantis in 2012, back with more in a minute. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. A few people know more about 
the lost civilization of Atlantis than Frank Joseph, and he's here with us, the former editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine, and his new book, again, Atlantis in 2012, The Science of the Lost Civilization and the Prophecies of the Maya. And uh, exactly what were the uh, the Mayan prophecies or the Atlantis Code uh, actually talking about? Now, here's an interesting story that um, that ran on the 26th of August, Frank. Let me get your take on this. Astronomers, and this comes out of Melbourne, Australia, the ANI News Service. Astronomers are predicting that a massive solar storm, much bigger in potential than the one that caused spectacular light shows on Earth earlier last month, is to strike our planet in 2012 with a force of 100 million hydrogen bombs. Several U.S. media outlets have reported that NASA was warning the massive flare last month was just a precursor to a massive solar storm building that had the potential to wipe out the entire planet's power grid. Similar storms back in 1859 and 1921 caused worldwide chaos, wiping out telegraph wires on a massive scale. The 2012 storm has the potential to be even more disruptive. The general consensus among general astronomers is that this coming solar maximum, 2012, but possibly later into 2013, will be the most violent in 100 years. Now, astronomy lecturer and columnist Dave Renke is saying, this is a bold statement and one taken seriously by those it will affect most, namely airline companies, communication companies, anyone working with modern GPS systems. They can even trip circuit breakers and knock out orbiting satellites, as has already been done this year. So, Frank Joseph, is this massive solar storm that uh, many astronomers are predicting, is this what the Mayan calendar is predicting? Well, it's really funny uh, what you read there, because it's almost word for word out of my own book that I published, you know, several months ago now. My word. uh, It's exactly what I've been writing. You, You... Cut to the chase, as it were, uh, which is okay. I, I was going to talk about a little bit about how the Maya are recognized by all mainstream uh, scholars as been as having been superb astronomers, far ahead of their time, and they were able to understand positions of stars and planets uh, thousands of years into the future. Unbelievable amount of work that they did. So. Uh, they were very great astronomers. And for them, for a people as great as they were, to say that something bad is going to happen with the sun um, beginning on uh, winter solstice 2012, we should at least pay attention to what they say. And, well, as you brought up so interestingly, and it's confirmed everything uh, that I've, I've said in my book, that is exactly what the, I believe the buyer are talking about. A major solar storm no matter how big, it means nothing to anybody on Earth, and never has. It just produces some very beautiful uh, displays of the northern lights. And what you mentioned there was this event that took place in 1859. And this is what really attracted my attention, uh, Richard, more than anything else. Um, Because I looked for the possibility of asteroid collisions and all these other things, solar flares and all this. Nothing seemed to fit for 2012. These things will happen in the future, the next few hundred or thousands of years, but nothing. But one event, one type of event is very possible, and that is a solar storm. A solar storm, the one that took place in 1859, knocked out all of the telegraph wires throughout the United States and Northern Europe. That's all where telegraph wires were at that time. Telegraph had only been invented 14 years before. 
And for some reason, nobody could understand, all the telegraph wires across northern Europe and in the United States went dead. Nobody figured it out except one brilliant American scientist who's not remembered well today at all. His name was Richard Carrington. And Richard Carrington posited that a major solar storm had taken place and had overcharged all of the electrical circuits that were at that time working for the telegraph wires. He made that assessment during the American Civil War. People were too busy killing each other at that time to pay much attention to scientific advancement. But it was in the 20th century he was understood to be correct. And another event, which they now refer to as a Carrington event, named after him, took place in the 1920s. It did a little bit more damage. It was a much smaller solar storm. Knocked out some of the railroad, telegraph wires, and so forth. So what? It's a big deal. Well, the big deal now is, since then, and beginning especially in the 1990s, our civilization is totally electronic. Computers, everything is run on electricity. You can't even flush your toilet or turn the water on your, in your sink without electricity. It runs the that runs the pumps. Nothing works without electricity. And if we had today a Carrington-sized event, a, a solar storm of the magnitude of the one that happened in 1859, if we had that now, our entire grid system would overload and shut down. And it would be of such a catastrophic shutdown that estimates are it would take anywhere between 12 and 30 months to get things back online. In other words, imagine our society with no electricity between 12 and 30 months, maybe longer. Well, it gets worse, now, Frank. Let me, let me give you another yeah. quote here from the same story. Dr. Richard Fisher, director uh -huh. of NASA's heliophysics division, mm -hmm. is saying... Uh, that, uh, again, you, you refer to it as a, a Carrington event or a, a storm similar to, say, 1859, ca would cause uh, $1 to $2 trillion in damages to our high-tech infrastructure, and he's saying it could require 4 to 10 years for complete recovery. 4 to 10 right. years. Yeah, yeah. There, have been, there have been estimates that it would, it would never happen, that we'd never get back. And the reason why is... Uh, for example, law enforcement would be forced to shut down. Uh, the first die-offs would be on a huge scale because refrigeration in the hospitals for insulin would be over with. I think all hospitals have enough electrical power of their own to last at only three or four days maximum. So people afflicted with diabetes, there'd be a die-off there right away. Then uh, law enforcement uh, would be in trouble. Now we have in the United States, it's estimated according to the FBI, something like, uh, I think it's over 90,000 armed gang members in the United States. 90,000, uh, that's equivalent to the German Sixth Army that surrendered at Stalingrad in 1943. We have that in the United States. So you can imagine uh, an armed army now uh, with no suppression whatsoever. What kind of this, the social, the sociological implications of electrical shutdown uh, are more than nightmarish. Now, show you how realistic this is, how serious people took this. Uh, last January, NASA launched the solar probe. And the solar probe cost, I don't, I don't know how much it cost, about a billion dollars, one of the most expensive satellites ever launched. It's the most sophisticated monitor of the sun ever launched. And it was launched specifically to monitor the sun to 
warn of a Carrington event. Now, what happens is, and the solar probe has been launched, it's up there right now, nobody knows how fast these Carrington events can travel. Some, the average speed, the sun being 93 million miles away, they figure it will take anywhere between <laughs> four days or four hours to reach the Earth. Now, what happens is when the solar probe monitors a major solar flare headed for Earth, they have a telephone link-up with the President of the United States. And they say, Mr. President, there's a Carrington event on the way. You have to shut down the entire electrical grid of the United States. Well, that's a bit of a political honest for anybody, isn't it? I mean, the, the President then has to get in contact with all the heads of the electrical um, powers that be and say everything has to be shut down in four hours or within four days. Well, maybe that'll happen and maybe it won't. And if, it, if he does shut it down and there's a mistake and the Carrington event doesn't happen or the solar flare misses us, the political implications are horrendous. And given America's uh, response to things like Her Hurricane Katrina, blah, 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 I wonder that we're going to have that kind of... Uh, wonderful efficiency in responding to an event like this. Not only that, but even if America did respond properly, would, 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 not, would Europe do the same thing? Would China respond the same? Even if, if Europe uh, was able to respond as America did, China would probably go down. Imagine the economic effect. I mean, our, the world economy at this moment is uh, virtually uh, unraveling as it is. Uh, all we need is something like that which would really trip the switch. And scientists are taking this so seriously now that they are going back over ancient Chinese records, which are the most realistic, um, trying to see when the greatest events of the, uh, the uh, northern lights took place. Because when you have a lot of northern lights going on, that's when you've got a lot of solar discharge interfacing with the magnetosphere of our planet. Now, when the Carrington event took place, and this is the thing that, that uh, tipped off Richard Carrington, the, the, the same time that the Carrington event took place in 1859 was the greatest known display of the northern lights. Never any, great, never any uh, greater display known. The northern lights were seen all the way down as far as Cuba, which was really remarkable, and they were so bright that uh, people could read newspaper by them. So oh, Carrington put two together, and he figured that that's what that was. Now, and... Uh, now they're going back over the ancient Chinese records to see when there were significant um, episodes. The Carrington event 1859 is the largest one historically recorded. Scientists know there were larger ones. And if there is a larger Carrington event that takes place in 2012, uh, we're going to be seriously challenged. And I believe that this is what the Maya foresaw. I think that this is what the Maya are talking about. They're not talking about the destruction of the world, but they're talking about the destruction of uh, human civilization, very possibly. Now, maybe we will escape that. I don't know. The Maya said that these catastrophes take place when human beings are out of accord with natural law, and that if human beings begin to get back in accord with natural law, these catastrophes can be avoided well, that's not really quite as crazy as it once seemed, because scientists now know, for example, that an experiment, the result of a, of a scientific experiment, cannot be disconnected from the person doing the experiment, from the experimenter. This is now understood that the experimenter actually has an effect on the, his mere presence 
as an effect on the outcome of the experiment. That's right. What's interesting uh, uh, to me, Frank, oh, there are many things on, uh, interesting, but the, what jumps out at me is the, uh, the Mayan prophecy about how a solar storm would have such an impact on human civilization, and they're making this prediction thousands and thousands of years before the advent of electricity when a solar storm <laughs> would not would not even have any noticeable effect on humankind in other words it wouldn't have any effect on the maya civilization whatsoever no if but in other words if we ours. if we weren't so i mean how would did they know that we would be so digitally reliant so that a a a solar storm would have such a catastrophic um, impact on us. That's, well, that's amazing. that's a $10,000 question, isn't it? I mean, yes. that's, that is the mind-boggling thing. How could they possibly have known? How could they have known? Let me get, there's an answer to that in a way. I, I think there's a possible. The very least that the Maya did, they predicted. They said that on the morning of 2012, you'll see this, this sign. Well, we know for a fact that what's going to happen, the very least that's going to happen on that morning, the winter solstice, is that the the ecliptic is going to form an alignment, an alignment with the galactic, the galactic uh, line, a cross in the sky. It's an imaginary cross, but this is an event. Now, the ecliptic is the sun's imaginary path across the sky. It's not imaginary. It's it looks that way from our point of view, and the galactic is the like the central line of the galaxy. Well, these two lines are going to form a cross in the sky, and this cross is going to be like a, a cross hairs, as it were, as it were something called the dark rift. And the dark rift is this area of this blackness. Scientists don't know exactly what it is. It's like dark matter. And that this cross is going to take place of the ecliptic and the galactic line right over the dark matter on the morning of 20. Well, this on the morning of 2012. Now, this alignment <laughs> has either never taken place before and never will take place again, or possibly took place 260,000 years ago. We don't know. But yet that's going to take place. That alignment is definitely going to take place. How remarkable. How could, how could they have known about that? I mean, that really sort of emphasizes that their prediction uh, might have something to it. My only possible explanation for this, how they could have known, is that I believe that the Maya were involved in remote viewing. I think that this is now, of course, another thing which is being taken very seriously by the U.S. Armed Forces yes. for something like 14 or 16 years. It is now known. Go on Wikipedia and look up remote viewing. You'll see that the U.S. Army and the U.S. Army Air, US Air Force was very seriously involved in remote viewing. Remote viewing is where a psychic is able to project his or her consciousness uh, beyond uh, time and space, and they wanted to be able to use these psychics to spy on the Soviet Union. According to the U.S. Uh, armed Forces, they say, oh, well, the results were not too good, and so we're not involved in that anymore. Well, why would why they do it for 16 years? It took them 16 years to figure that out? And there's a lot of indications that the armed forces personnel learned enough from the psychics to kick them out and now they're doing stuff on their own and i think that that's what the maya did i think they used their own um, use of, of uh, narcotics and their own spiritual disciplines to project their consciousness backwards and forwards in the time 
really, how else could they have? How else could they have figured out their astronomy anyway? I mean, they had, had here they had uh, had. Uh, uh, gotten some from the Atlanteans for sure. They had inherited some from the Atlanteans, but they took it much further. I think. I think that the Maya themselves were a great people who were able to somehow extend their consciousness consciousness into our time. All right, Frank. But there's uh, no other explanation for it. Perhaps not. Uh, stay with us, Frank. Back on the other side, more of Atlantis in 2012 here on the Conspiracy Show. make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Talk about your long count calendar. This is a book that's a quarter century in the making. Atlantis and 2012, Frank Joseph explains that the Mayan calendar, of course, this is the one that's on everyone's mind. Remember this Hollywood uh, movie that came out uh, earlier this year uh, about uh, 2012. Uh, And uh, Joseph explains how the Mayan calendar was invented by the combined genius of Atlantis also the ancient civilization of Lemuria, which was uh, sort of a, um, a Pacific uh, sister to Atlantis, and also, I think, a precursor to that Atlantean civilization. Uh, so you've got the Atlanteans, you've got the Lemurians influencing various cultures around the world, including the Mesoamerican cultures and the ancient Egyptian culture. And this calendar describes an eternal cycle of global creation, destruction, and renewal. Correlating this recurring cycle with scientific studies on glacial ice cores and predictions from the Hopi, the Incas, and the Scandinavian Norse, Frank Joseph reveals that 2012 could be the start of the advent of a massive solar system, or a massive solar storm, but you also mentioned the possibility of a new ice age beginning at that time as well. So is this right. a, an either-or proposition, or does does one go sort of hand-in-glove with the other? No, I, I think they're probably neither. Um, we are definitely going to have... Well, actually, the Ice Age has never stopped. We go through different glacial periods, glacial... They're called stadials. This is where things get either warmer or colder. We've been in a, a warm phase for a long time. And the general consensus among scientists is that the warm phase has got to end very soon. And we know why ice ages are are formed now. That's because of the Earth's uh, relationship to the sun, the angular relationship to the sun. The Earth doesn't spin perfectly um, like a top. It it, it wobbles. I guess a top wobbles also. And we're going through a wobble now. So we could have um, the onset of uh, so-called ice age conditions fairly soon. I don't really see it for 2012. I mentioned it in the book. I have a couple of chapters about it because um, we are going to have one. I think it's very possible, maybe even within our lifetime. I don't know. Um, But 
there's not been a real good consensus on when this ice age will take place. Some scientists, some Russian scientists, said it could be uh, could start in 2012. My emphasis on the book, though, is that there's a far greater uh, danger involved here, and that is the solar flares, the Carrington event. Um, I wanted to mention that uh, we are able to determine when there's going to be a Carrington event pretty easily, and that's by sunspots. Uh, now, these spots on the sun, they're not spots, really. They're, they're roiling typhoons, 300 times larger than the Earth, but they look like little spots to us because the sun is so far away. And these typhoons, these great hurricanes on the sun, they explode outwards, and they produce such a tremendous uh, produce such a tremendous amount of uh, plasmic uh, material that they could interface with our uh, magnetosphere and short out our electrical civilization. Now, these solar spots have not been seen on the sun. The sun has been bald for about two years now. That's a bad sign because. If you have solar, if you have solar spots, uh, these sunspots every once in a while, that means the sun is venting itself. But if you have a period in which there are no su- no sunspots at all, that means that the sun is getting ready for something big. And that's why some of the scientists that you quoted earlier in the program are concerned because there has not, there has been some solar uh, some sunspot activity recently but it's been of a very low magnitude and there's still been virtually no sunspot activity for 2 years that's a long time it's over 2 years now going about two and a half years and if it continues this way um, through next year we can expect something uh, major in 2012, and that's what scientists are, are doing, and that's why they spent, or why the U.S. taxpayers spent about a billion dollars to launch the solar probe, because they are so concerned. We've got to have some kind of a monitor up there. We have a really great monitor up there now. The solar probe is watching the sun very closely, but if human beings back on Earth don't pull the plug in a timely fashion, uh, we're going to have a real rough time here. Like I said, even if even if North America would escape, uh, and Europe went down, and China went down, Asia went down, boy, the effects on the economy, the global economy. This is this is uh, one of the like it or not. This is one of the hazards of a global economy. Uh, if we were if we had a national economy, uh, not quite as connected with other parts of the world. Um, we would have stand a better chance of surviving something like this. But because we are all so interconnected now, China uh, could take everybody down. And we know that that's a fact now, economically. Well, I don't have to go into all the details. They're obvious enough. So that's my real concern. When I first looked into this 2012 business, I was really skeptical. I thought, oh, boy, this is an excuse for people to write a lot of books and make silly movies. But when I looked into the Carrington event, which I was totally ignorant of, never heard of it before, I was really impressed. And then when I read what the Maya said about it, there's going to be trouble with the sun that could reduce uh, human beings to a very bad state again. Um, That's very interesting. And that's why I'm on the show tonight, I guess. Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, you can't go anywhere with... uh even you know hosting this show, people are always asking me, when are you going to talk about 2012 again? 
it's just uh, on, on people's mind. But a few years ago, the, the Mayan elders, I understand, broke their silence. And uh, this is uh, these, this, this council. They represent hundreds of, of uh, Mayan tribes from you know, Guata, Guatemala and, and, uh, and, and elsewhere across the Central, uh, Central America. Now, what, I don't know if you recall uh, when, when they came out, and this is something like after 500 years, uh, you know, they, uh, they actually spoke about the end of time or the beginning of a new civilization. What is it that they said at that time? Because I seem to recall them sort of dis- dismissing this, you know, major cataclysmic event coming our way, and they were sort of saying it'll be, it'll be the, a, a new beginning. They were sort of emphasizing the positive, or am I misremembering? Well, I don't. I'm not really that familiar with it. Uh, I'm afraid uh, I, I take a rather skeptical view of people that call themselves Maya today. There are de- definite tribes who can trace back to the Mayas. These are people that are very s- small numerically, and they're very reclusive. They don't make statements to anybody. These are the real Mayas now, the ones that I know. Um, they consider themselves really keepers of the old ways, and they do not like to share things with anybody because, well, they'll run afoul of the Catholic Church, quite honestly. Hmm. And as far as people that call themselves Maya councils and so on, uh, I'm very skeptical. Okay. So um, whatever they say or don't say, um, they may be 100% right. I don't know. I'm just going for the original source materials. I'm not going on people who call themselves the Mayan elders, and so on. Um, you have to understand that the Maya civilization collapsed. It vanished uh, 900 A.D. It hasn't been around since then. That was the end. Maya civilization uh, ended. And that the people that survived that um, melded into other Mesoamerican civilizations or were reduced from their former greatness to just tribal peoples. So we cannot really talk about uh, Maya civilization being around for more than a thousand years. So I'm going back to the original traditions and reading what the what the Maya themselves said, what they told the uh, Spaniards and when the Spanish arrived in the early part of the 16th century. The few Maya that were left, you know, the, the Spaniards killed most of them off. Most of the original populations of Mexico and Mesoamerica were exterminated. The people that are there today, uh, the vast majority of them, have no connection uh, to the ancient peoples at all, because most of those ancient peoples uh, were the victims of genocide. They're wiped out. And that's what we see today, the people that are in Mexico and so on. They are hybrid people. They're uh, cross between the Spaniards and other Europeans that came over and some of the native people that were there, the Indians. But we don't have the people that are in, in Mexico and Guatemala today and so forth. Uh, really, none of the ancient peoples there because they were killed off. That's the reality of it. You know, people that call themselves Mayan elders and so on. Well, I'm, I'm skeptical. Maybe I shouldn't be, but but I am. Well, the, and the Maya themselves, uh, the ancient Maya records. That's what I go by, and they do not paint a pretty picture. The only. Uh, the only rosy take you can make on this at all is that what the what the Maya said fundamentally, and that is if if society gets its act back together again, if society begins to follow the the rules of nature, then you can avoid these catastrophes. But if society as a whole does not, 
you can expect these catastrophes that take place. The four former catastrophes, global cataclysms that took place, according to the Maya, happened because human beings sinned against the very principles that brought them into existence. And presumably this is what Atlantis also did uh, prior yes. to their demise. Uh, well, let me, let me dial back then to, uh, uh, to the Atlantean civilization. And, and, and I asked you earlier on about the, the technological advances of this civilization. Um, this is before we got into the discussion about the uh, the Mayan calendar. I mean, there were there there are legends of uh, you know Atlantis having uh, uh, like a monorail system that uh, that was sort of anti gravitic. Uh, I mean, did they have that level of technology? Is there way of any way of knowing that for sure? Well, what we do know is that they did achieve great uh, technological breakthroughs in many ways. We, there, there are actually even some evidences of that left. The great mining operation that the Atlanteans undertook in the Upper Peninsula of uh, Michigan, the Great Lakes area, the Upper Great Lakes area, was astounding, especially for something 5,000 years ago. But I think the, the point of all this is that their technology... Uh, all these wonders they came up with, all the great stuff that they were producing, became completely self-indulgent and uh, just served their own luxurious ends. And they became worshippers of technology. That was the... they turned away from any spiritual considerations. Originally, they were highly moral and ethical and spiritually interesting to people, but all that was sort of kicked aside because you couldn't really put a price on it, and the technology became the focus of power, of instant gratification, as it were. You, could, you had power that was uh, over nature. And that was eventually the beginning of their undoing. That is what caused their society to collapse internally, and whatever happened to them later on was just the coup de grace, as it were. I mean, did they I have. That's what Plato is, is mentioning. Yeah, they were great people. They achieved wonders. Did they have electricity? Wonders. Did they have electricity? Did they have electricity? Perhaps they probably had, they had many great things. I don't know that for a fact that they had. There are indications. Yes, there are indications that they knew about the principles of electricity. I, we're talking about the the Baghdad battery, for example. This is a battery which is over two thousand years old. So somebody understood the principles of electroplating, and that uh, this. Is uh, one indication that they had some acquaintance, a nodding acquaintance with uh, electricity. And why did they mine all that copper? They mined uh, a half a billion pounds of the world's highest grade copper. Was it all used to make bronze? Or maybe it was used for something else, too. Who knows? The transmission of electricity, possibly. It's entirely possible. But uh, like I said, the main thrust of all that is however great they achieved things, it's all gone now. They wrecked everything, they destroyed themselves because they allowed their technology to become their god. They worshipped technology over everything else because it was a way of bringing them all the power and wealth they wanted, and they lost sight of how it. They came into existence, and that's exactly what the Maya were saying. Well, that was the big fault. That was the, the, the sin of their society. And here we have history... They carried away with all of their fancy gizmos and everything else, and... Sounds familiar. ...needs for them. Sounds very familiar. Stay with us, Frank. Back with more in a moment on The Conspiracy Show as we discuss Atlantis and 2012. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sennett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Discussing the monumental calendrical achievement of the, uh, the Maya, who were in fact heavily influenced my guest, Frank Joseph, says, by the Atlanteans, or survivors of the final catastrophe, cataclysmic event, uh, to befall the Atlantean civilization. Now, uh, Frank, we, uh, we haven't discussed Lemuria, which... That, now, does Lemuria predate Atlantis? Right. That's an extremely interesting, um, very old culture. Yes, as a matter of fact, the Atlanteans were Lemurians, it would appear. The Lemurians were uh, people who arose in, on a, a series of archipelagos. These are island arcs that spread across the South and Central Pacific, and some of these island arcs, these archipelagos, still exist to this day. And human beings, it would appear, arose on these islands first. This is now science is just beginning to really admit this now. Um, the first modern human beings, Homo sapiens sapiens, is now to be understood as to have arisen maybe separately or maybe first entirely on his own in Indonesia. Uh, the out-of-Africa theory now is actually in question. There is there is some competition for that. And um, it's sort of neck and neck that uh, Homo sapiens sapiens arose first in East Africa or Indonesia. There's a fellow there called Java Man, the earliest Homo erectus, the earliest one, even earlier than East Africa. So something's going on there. And it would appear that the survivors of these very early Homo erectus, survivors of the catastrophe we mentioned at the beginning of the show. This is the Toba event. That really was the most important single incident in all human history, is where human beings were narrowed down to just a few thousand, maybe as few as 1,000 breeding pairs. Unbelievable. All humanity reduced to that. And that some of those breeding pairs... uh, they went into China and Europe, and others survived the event, and 
went into what is now the islands of Polynesia and so forth, and they interacted with a very favorable environment, and they appear to have created the very first um, organized society. And we call it Lemuria. Um, went under many different names because it was so old. But there are wonderful traces of it all through the Pacific. It's not very well known. And I, I really enjoyed writing that book. Uh, it's called The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. I wrote that about four years ago. That took me a long time. I traveled throughout the Pacific. I went through the islands of Japan and Thailand and Polynesia and so forth. And uh, it took a long time and saw wonderful things. And I think that human beings actually arose in the Pacific, first of all. I know this is kind of contrary, it's almost heretical to uh, mainstream thought, but the indications are, uh, we don't have the same kind of documented proof, of course, because it's so long ago and so much has been lost, but there are indications, serious ones, that the very first human beings, modern human beings, uh, rose in Indonesia and then spread throughout to the Central and South Pacific, and there they created the first, what you could call, I suppose, a civilization, the earliest one, known as Lemuria. And this would even predate Sumeria. Oh, by a long shot, by many thousands of years. It was a very slow affair, to be sure, and no one can say for sure when it coalesced, uh, but it slowly did over time, and there are ruins of this civilization spread out all across Polynesia, Macronesia, Micronesia, the Caroline Islands, tremendous ruins that the native peoples never built and admit that they never built, were always built by foreigners, usually described as giants. In other words, not physically giant necessarily, but giants of intellect. There's a place, uh, for example, in Macronesia called Panop. It's that obscure little island in the middle of nowhere. I think the nearest landfall is like 2,100 miles away in the, the Philippines. And on this little island of Panop, there is an, an amazing city of, of huge square-cut stones weighing many tons, the remnants of great uh, sluice gates and towers, all made out of magnetized basalt. This isn't anything I'm making up. It's, it sounds like it. It's called Non-Madol, and it's a complete enigma to archaeologists. They don't have a clue who could have built this huge place. That's just part of the ruins that are spread all over the Pacific. There are other ruins like that. Great pyramids, for example, on the island of Tonga. Nobody knows who made them. Uh, stones weighing many tons. Even modern equipment would have a very difficult time picking the things up. Yeah, this is the remnants of this ancient civilization, and the Lemurians were very much in touch with uh, natural law. And I think they were invented some of the concepts that the Atlanteans later picked up, perfected, became... The Atlanteans were really the first modern civilization, you know, with armies and economies and control and conquests and things like that. The Lemurians were not interested in any of that. It does not appear. They were more like today's modern, oh, Tibetans. I think they were more interested in spiritual concepts just as the Tibetans are today more interested in spiritual concepts concepts than so-called um, materialistic ones. Let's go and to the... Uh, the Atlanteans picked this up. Let's go to yeah. the phones and uh, say hello to Michael, who's in the Beaches neighborhood of Toronto. Good evening, or good, good morning, Michael. How are you? Uh, not, 
well, a little scared tonight, I guess. But because you were, you know, reading earlier on from some article talking about all these possible power outages and uh, wars and, uh, you know, some, uh, solar flares and things like that in 2012. So therefore, my question really is to the guest, what is the difference between what is going to happen in 2012 and what new agers, you know, the new age, uh, maybe Aquarius or maybe, you know, they talk about spiritual evolution. Somehow we're supposed to evolve spiritually and things like that. The dawning of the age of Aquarius, which is also supposed to happen, I guess, sort of coincide with, uh, with 2012. Good question, Michael. Frank? It's an excellent question. And as a matter of fact, there are traditions, both in the past and presently, that do inflect on this 2012 as being some kind of a benchmark that's coming up. And who knows? It might really be a period of great spiritual enlightenment for the survivors of something like this. Let's say, for example, that our materialistic civilization is smashed to pieces and that our population is severely reduced. It has happened before, the event. Things like that have happened. And maybe we, the survivors will have learned their lessons, and maybe it's possible I've heard the New Ages in uh, 250 years as well from another guest. Well, I wouldn't want to place any particular time limit on it, but it's conceivable that there would be a rebirth of spiritual understanding uh, in consideration of everything that has been so horribly destroyed and led to such a terrible impasse. So it's possible there would be rejuvenation, but I don't think any of these prophecies... Uh, say it's going to be an easy process, that society has gone very far in one direction and something is going to be necessary to take it very far in the other direction before people can reach that kind of spiritual rebirth. Michael, in the beaches, uh, thank you for your call. Do you think that the solar storm that's headed our way uh, and uh, the fact that we could be literally offline for uh, four to ten years, could this end up being, in terms of the uh, the impact on the human population, another Toba event? Oh, I think absolutely it would. Uh, it would be, yes, I, I, I think so. Uh, I th- it would be the total unraveling of everything that our society is, is built on. All services would be terminated at once. We'd be thrown back on our own self-reliance. And I don't know if people in North America are prepared for for that sort of a a challenge, but I, I think that um, it would be very very difficult. I mean, look at what happened at Hurricane Katrina. That is a a very small minor uh, event compared to what uh, could happen, and that people lost their lives there. You had anarchy. Um, they had the complete uh, unraveling of uh, organized society and you expand that now, that just is a microcosm of what would happen across the Northern Hemisphere. All right, let's uh, go to uh, Iowa City, Iowa, and Tim joins The Conspiracy Show. Good morning, Tim. You're on the line morning. with Frank Joseph. Hello. Okay, I'd like to ask if there are giants that are 24 feet tall with a mouth, a foot wide, and six-inch throat cavity that lived in Atlantis or in those ancient civilizations, and if they were friendly or not, and what type of voices they had. That's what I'm interested in, and I'd like to find that out. 
and I'll be listening off the air. Thanks. Thank you, Tim. Giants on uh, or in Atlantis. What can you tell me about that, Frank? Well, that's very interesting because uh, the, the people of Atlantis are referred to by the Greeks as Titans, and these were people of uh, great stature. Uh, we know for a fact that uh, there were an ancient people in North America who archaeologists refer to as the Adena. This is just an archaeological term. These people probably really called themselves something like Allegheny or Aleg, something like that. And that uh, these people were nowhere near 20 feet tall, but the mounds that have been excavated in the Ohio Valley have often uh, brought out the remains of people who are well over seven feet tall. It's incredible, but it's a, an archaeological fact, which is not very much discussed publicly, but the records are, are clear in there, that um, this people known as the Adena or the Allegheny, who lived in North America about 3,000 years ago, produced uh, red-haired giants. And by any standards, these were giants. These were people. The males were, the tallest male found was 7'2 or 7 feet 3, incredibly. And the tallest woman found was, was 6 feet 8. Um, this isn't to say that all of them were this size. Uh, many of them, probably most of them, were the same stature as modern men and women today. But they did produce a number of men and women who were right around seven feet tall. Uh, the native traditions of them refer to them as the Yom Kodesh, which means the red-haired giants. And um, they were literally exterminated. They were the victims of ge of genocide uh, they were wiped out at a place called the uh, Falls of the Ohio in Kentucky, or at least the last of them were, around 700 A.D. They were very great people. Um, they were one of the er they were the earliest civilized peoples in North America. They introduced agriculture, as a matter of fact. And uh, I've been studying these people for a very long time, as you probably can gather. But uh, the they definitely were giants. They were 24 feet, but seven feet is a tall enough for me. The tallest one, I say, was seven. Two, I think, the one that was well, found in Chillicothe. Well, okay. how did this uh, notion that the Atlanteans were 24 feet tall uh, come about? Or were they, in fact, well, giants? <laughs> well, I, I guess things get conflated over time, you know. That's the wonderful thing about myth. Uh, there are stories. Myth is a story that preserves a kernel of truth. There's a, there's a kernel of truth in all myths, otherwise they wouldn't be around for so long. But... Uh, in order to preserve these stories, they get uh, fantasized, and it's the job, I think, of a scholar to sort of peel away the, the onion skin of poetic uh, embellishment to get to what's really going on inside. So 24 feet, well, that's a bit much, but 7 feet, yeah, that's right, they really were. Some of these people were So were the Alleghenies, the Alleghenies or the Adenas, were they in fact descendants of the Atlanteans? No, I don't think so. I think these were ancient Celts <laughs> that were here. They built the same type of uh, stone forts in Ohio that they built in Europe. In Europe, uh, they are called uh, Opida. They are these great stone forts that were located on tops of hills. And we find the exact same thing uh, in the Ohio Valley and other parts of the American Middle West. They buried their dead in the same way in Ohio that they did in Europe. They built these sort of log uh, crypts and filled them in with gravel into uh, great mounds, earthen mounds. They did the same thing in Western Europe. And uh, the, the Celts of the old days, they, they fought the Romans. They sometimes were seven feet tall also. And here the little Romans are only about five, six or so. 
and they use their military genius to overcome these giants. But uh, interesting story, yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. we. I think uh, the last time you were on, uh, Frank, we got into uh, um, sort of pre-Columbian uh, America, and we talked about some of these uh, these peoples, the Adinas included. Yeah. Let's let's say hello to uh, Arthur in Toronto. Good morning, Arthur. You're on the line with Frank Joseph here on the Conspiracy Show. Hi to both. I can't understand, like thousands of other people, why people refuse to keep the same the simple account of the Bible that created as humans as we are today, Adam and Eve. Not evolved, but created as humans. Well, that's not really the topic of discussion tonight, well, Arthur. But, on it. Uh, well, perhaps it does. Let's find out from Frank Joseph. The right. the well, wh- wh- where do you then place the creation story in the Bible in in, in this? Time frame after uh, before Atlantis after the the, the uh, Toba event where, where Frank? Well, I think uh, the Bible is uh, the Old Testament. I think our Arthur is referring to that the Old Testament is a wonderful, great, epic poem. That's the way I look at it, and it certainly has marvelous truths that are enshrined in this this, this great literature. The Old Testament, uh, if, if nothing else, the Old Testament is this great, uh, beautiful work of literature and myth that enshrines these high truths. And, and to answer your question about where, what time they go, no, I don't see it going back as far as Toba. That's 75,000 years ago. That's at a time when human beings were a very, uh, compared to where we are now, a very primitive state, weren't able to write things down. But I do see it within the Atlantean time, for sure, um, the story of the flood, for example, that's enshrined in Genesis, the writers of the Bible got that from uh, the ancient Sumerians. The Sumerian story of the flood is very similar to the one in the Bible. The Sumerians predated the uh, Hebrew authors of the Bible, the Old Testament. And that's the great thing about the Old Testament. It's a mosaic, just as the Jewish people regard themselves as a mosaic people. Mosaic means they take bits and pieces from other cultures and combine it in themselves and create something new. And that really is what the Old Testament is. It's a mosaic work that's influenced to a great degree by Mesoamerican tradition. This is not to uh, uh, denigrate the Old Testament or take away from it at all. It's just as influenced by the times in which it was written. And it does talk about the flood, and it is an Atlantean event. I'm going to that in my book, too, to some degree. But I think that the Old Testament, uh, if you read it in the right way, you can uh, see some of these truths we're talking about tonight. Specifically, if uh, human beings do not uh, abide by God's law, uh, you can expect God's law to eventually snap back on you, both as an individual and as a people. And uh, that's a, something that the Maya themselves uh, enshrined. So uh, we're going into a break here, but very quickly, uh, uh, Frank, then would I be off the mark to suggest that Noah was an Atlantean and when the ark uh, came ashore, basically, after 40 days and 40 nights, it came ashore on Mexico, in Mexico? <laughs> well, you can look at that poetically, but yes, I believe Noah was Atlantean. Yes, I do. I think he was an Atlantean. Amazing. All right, uh, a final timeout, and then we'll come back. A few questions remain for Frank Joseph. Atlantis in 2012, and don't forget, bottom of the hour, 1230, we'll open up the lines for your spine-tingling tales. Question everything. 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Your encounters with the supernatural, paranormal, just plain weird coming up in mere moments. A few moments remain with Frank Joseph, Atlantis and 2012. Frank, can I ask how you're preparing uh, if, uh, if the solar storm of the century is coming uh, sometime in 2012 uh, and is going to knock out uh, the worldwide grid. I mean, imagine, you know, uh, water filtration plants gone. It would take up to 10 years to get everything back online if there was anyone left uh, to be serviced. W- w- what are your plans? I tell you, uh, when I first got into this, I was thinking, like, hey, what should I do? You know, I actually started storing water for a while and things like that. I think that if we look out for ourselves as individuals, we're going to die. We're going to perish. Let's say this thing actually takes place. I don't think that as individuals we can do it. I think what we need to do is to find those people that we can cooperate with, that the only real solution, the only way to survive is to find some level of cooperation with others, to go out and to find others to cooperate with and to link up because there will be no more authorities if this Carrington event happens. If worst-case scenario takes place, the only way to really survive, I think, is to find others that are like-minded or at least uh, sympathetic to some degree and find some level of cooperation on a very very low social level, on a, on a neighborhood level. I think friends and colleagues are going to be the, the way to survive. Uh, as individuals storing guns and water and food, that's not going to work. I don't believe that. I think we'll have to find people to cooperate with. Um, but does that mean you, you stay put, or do you get out of Dodge? What do you, what, 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 do you, I mean, do you have an escape plan? No, there is no place to escape, too. Uh, you just have to deal with it. I think we're going to have to just stay where we are. I don't believe... No, I don't think there, there's no place to go to. Well, some place where you could grow your own food, for example. You'd need some acreage. That's not a bad idea. You know, that's what I mean. If if you can connect with your neighbors, you can be really neighbors with them again. You know, share. Everybody has their own little talents. Whatever you can do, boy, I'm as untalented as can be when it comes to survival. All I can do is write. Boy, that's really useless. You know, that nobody's going to need me for anything. But I'll I'll be doing like slave labor gladly. You know, hauling stuff or whatever. Because I mean, I don't know how to uh, do some of the things that uh, you know. I'm not a hunter or anything like that. And I'd have to link up with people that know these things. And I think we're going to be valuable as individuals with what we can do or are willing to do. And that's that's what I've that's the, the the mindset that I have for this. But I'm not storing water or bullets or any of that stuff because I I don't think that works. All right, a couple of off-air questions. Uh, John in Toronto mentions the Amish and the Mennonite societies and how they don't rely on electricity. They they they'd be secure. He suggests that seems to be a reasonable argument. I think they're going to be miles ahead, exactly. I think they'll be miles ahead of everybody else. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, I think so. Those people are already. Uh, quite hardy, and, and uh, they're going to be okay. I think they're going to be all right. They, they might turn out to be the leaders of this whole thing. People uh, like that anyway. Gary in Toledo, Ohio, uh, harkens back to a comment you made earlier, and again, this is something that we talked about on your last appearance on the show, and that was that huge copper mining operation on the shores of Lake Superior. He wanted to know more about that, where specifically it was, and who was doing the mining, and what time frame. Okay, the time frame from it uh, was uh, 5,000 years ago. Uh, until that time, um, there was really no real human activity up around the Great Lakes area to speak of. 
and this enormously huge and sophisticated mining enterprise erupted about 3000 BC and went straight through to about 1200 BC and during that time an absolute minimum this is ultra conservative estimate of 12 uh, excuse me half a billion pounds of the world's highest grade copper was removed from pit mines the realistic figure for that is easily twice that amount and the copper mining took place on the Kiwanee Peninsula and in Isle Royale specifically, but all over the Upper Great Lakes area because that is the concentration of the world's highest grade copper. And the mystery, of course, is who was involved in this copper mining enterprise and why did it start and stop so abruptly? And I'm not here to pitch my books, but uh, since we have so little time, I go into that in great detail in a book I wrote called Survivors of Atlantis, in which there are several chapters devoted entirely to the copper mining enterprise, which is a great scandal in archaeology because archaeologists have known about it for over 100 years, but they don't talk about it because they have no answers for it. Well, that was my final question, uh, Frank, and that is, you know, why don't we hear, for example, about, uh, you know, in museums uh, and in, in, in my, my wife was an archaeologist, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she, she was unaware of... Uh, uh, this mining operation. Uh, why why don't we learn about it in textbooks? Why don't we see uh, evidence of it in in museums? Why uh, why are academics or, or archaeologists what are they afraid of? Well, they're afraid of the A word because the moment that you get into this huge project that took place, you know first of all one thing that the Native Americans didn't do it, and then when you start investigating the Native American traditions of these great pit mines, they invariably describe, as the Menominee Indians do, of what they call the marine men or the sea peoples, who were these people that came from across the sea in great ships, and they had all kinds of magic to look at. They say that they uh, violated Mother Earth by digging out her her shiny bones which, of course, is a poetic metaphor for extracting copper in large quantities. And the, the thing about it is, is that this copper mining that took place between 3000 B.C. and 1200 B.C., well, guess what, folks? On the other side of the world, the Bronze Age erupted. And in order for you to make bronze, you have to have high-grade copper, which, com- which you combine with zinc and tin. Europe has always had a lot of zinc and tin, not too much tin, but enough tin, but never has had a significant enough amount of high-grade copper. So here you have all this copper vanishing. That's the thing, and not only, this is the mystery too, not only was it mined, none of it's over here. And all the copper that was extracted vanished, and it reappeared in Europe. Well, of course, this contravenes the basic plank of, our, of archaeology, which is nobody over into the New World before Columbus. That's heresy to say that there was anybody of any significance from the Old World in America before 1492. And yet here, obviously, there were thousands of people over here for thousands of years mining copper, bringing it back to Europe. And who was the big copper baron, the big... Broker of copper, according to Plato, the Atlanteans, <laughs> right in the middle, he describes them as copper barons whose great wealth was based on their importation of orichalcum, which is high-grade copper. Now, all this, of course, is 
totally heresy to archaeologists, and that's why they're not going to talk about it. Well, uh, Frank, we love to have heretics on this program. I hope you'll join us again. <laughs> it's always a delight uh, speaking with you. What are you working on uh, next? I'm doing an autobiography of Howard Beale. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and so we My start great the... hero. Well, that's great. We start the program uh, every uh, every no, week. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm being facetious. <laughs> of course, right now I'm just working very hard and acquainting people like your wonderful audience with uh, Atlantis in 2012, and I hope that uh, they found it interesting tonight. Absolutely. Frank, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Until next time, Frank Joseph, Atlantis and 2012. Coming up next, your spine-tingling tales. We'll kick it off with Marion in Glendale, Wisconsin, who wants to talk about giants. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Your encounters with UFOs, strange creatures, ghosts. Perhaps you've recorded what you think is a particularly excellent example of uh, an EVP, electronic voice phenomenon, or uh, some uh, paranormal researchers believe a spirit voice caught on tape. Love to hear from you. Marion is in Glendale, Wisconsin. Good morning, Marion. I would thank you for the very interesting program with the author. You're quite and welcome. I would just like to make a few comments on the giants part. In the United States, uh, I'm just calling this off the top of my head. In California, they found the skeletons of some very tall people, perhaps 12 feet tall, and they had exhibited them for some time, and then suddenly they all disappeared. This is shortly after 1900. In the Grand Canyon, there's an entire section of the Grand Canyon that is closed off to the general public where they found bones, some believe even some Egyptian uh, caskets-like, but very tall people, perhaps 12 feet as well, that all disappeared into the, or not all of it, but quite a bit of it, into the Smithsonian where it is kept from the eyes of regular taxpayers. And I recall the items of the Ohio River, the embankments and the hills, that there was great wealth found with the skeletons there. And then in Canada, I remember not all that long ago, someone was speaking of the bones of a family, of the husband, the wife, some children, and some others that were buried. And they, too, were very tall and with red hair. Oh, yes, I must mention, the skeleton in California also had remnants of red hair. So uh, the reason they said that in Canada that they were Celtic people, was that the fabric that was left of uh, sort of like a tartan almost for both of the man and the wife, and she had a wreath of what were now dried flowers on her chest in the proper burial pose of the time that it would correspond with uh, ancient peoples elsewhere. And it is amazing that people think that uh, only Columbus was first 
where there's so much evidence of the Vikings. Well, as Frank, Very tall people. As Frank Joseph said, Christopher Columbus wasn't first. He was probably last. Marion, thanks for checking in from the Dairy State. Uh, I had the pleasure of driving through Wisconsin on a number of occasions. It's just a beautiful, a beautiful place. And uh, next we go to uh, Tim in Iowa City. He also wants to weigh in on the giant topic. Hello, Tim. Welcome Hi, this to the... is Tim Keller. Hi. There's a rival network that's like the conspiracy show. It's on for like four or five hours central time from, say, 12 o'clock at night till like four or five in the morning. And there's a guy on there called... His name is Stephen Quayle. He wrote a book on Genesis Giants and then a follow-up. And it's in print, and he uses what is called alternative uh, media. You you have to go to his publisher's website or him directly. And I can't get a book on it in a format I can use as a blind person. And this, of course, is very upsetting to anyone who's totally blind who listens to this to this conspiracy show as well as Coast to Coast, and there is a push for the blind to get Stephen Quayle to really sit in a format they can use, such as on Compact Disc, and I was not very successful. I'll deal with the Iowa Department of the Blind in Des Moines, Iowa, and this, of course, has got to change in fast, because the word will have to get back to Stephen Quayle that this is a very uproar on the blind. Now, there's a guy from Glendale, Wisconsin, that's writing a book about giants, or, or I mean being a, on talking about giants. I don't know whether he has information about giants being 24 feet tall when he's on next week or something like that. But that's my biggest interest at the moment in regard to this conspiracy show, as well as Coast to Coast on a number of radio stations across the United States and Canada. George Norrie hosts it on the weekdays and Eon Punnett on the weekends. And, of course, there's George Knapp for the most part on Sundays as well. And occasionally Art Bell comes on to fill in for George Norrie. Yeah, Tim, we're all familiar with Coast to Coast. And, I, I mean, they're, they're good friends. I had the pleasure of, uh, of guest hosting on Coast to Coast uh, over a year ago. I, I just, um, uh, you know, I, I think your your points are, are very, very valid, that uh, there certainly needs to be... Uh, a greater attention uh, paid to uh, it's a very large market, obviously uh, c- the, the the blind com- comprise and and, and uh, they, they don't it, even have the coast newsletter and need yeah I, I you know what I really don't want to talk about coast blind. Tim I, I, I with all due respect I really would rather not talk about coast to coast on this program because they are let's face it a competitor uh, it's a different radio station here in this market all I can speak of. Uh, is the conspiracy show here on AM seven forty, and uh, it's it's a it's a great point, and I, I'll bring it up with uh, authors. Uh, I'll I'll make this pledge to you. Uh, when I have an author on this program, uh, like Frank Joseph, uh, I'll ask them, you know, whether they will they would uh, would consider, you know, putting out uh, perhaps a, a talking book uh, on uh, on 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 CD or some other audio format, so that our um, our listeners who happen to be uh, sight impaired uh, might be also able to uh, avail themselves of this valuable information. Tim, thank you from Iowa City. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show here on AM seven forty. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Earlier I mentioned uh, William Shatner's new program, which debuted earlier this week on the History Channel. William Shatner's Weird or What? And one of the stories featured in the season premiere had to do with a couple of window washers in New York City that uh, plummeted something like 40 stories, 40 stories, uh, or nearly 500 feet to the street below. They were brothers. And uh, one of them was killed instantly, and the other one miraculously survived. Mind you, he had... Uh, you know, two broken legs and severe spinal uh, injury, but uh, several months later, he was up and moving around and walking and just baffling experts as to how someone could survive such a fall. Well, here we go again. A man who jumped more than 400 feet after leaping off a New York apartment block survived after crashing feet first into a parked car. Uh, This just happened earlier this week. Thomas McGill, 22, is said to be in stable condition after the jump, suffering only two broken legs and a bruised lung. He only suffered two broken legs and a bruised lung after falling over 400 feet. Eyewitnesses said he was still conscious, screaming, my leg, my leg, as he lay slumped on the back seat of the car. Mr. McGill, an aspiring actor and singer, had leapt from the 39th floor of the building on New York's Upper West Side. Again, he fell more than 400 feet and reached speeds of up to 126 miles per hour before crashing into a red Dodge Charger. Residents of the building told police they saw a body whiz past their window before others on the ground heard a thud as he slammed into the car. That's a miracle if ever I've seen one. He should be a goner said construction worker Guy McCormick. The car belonged to his wife. That is remarkable. What else is going on? Scientists have used state-of-the-art 3D computer technology to create what they say is the first true likeness of William Shakespeare. This is available on uh, the dailymail.co.uk website. And there is a picture. It's a History Channel exclusive. A 3D image of what the great bard looked like. Looks a little bit like Dennis Hopper. (laughs) I was not prepared for that. The image shows every wrinkle on the playwright's face and the figure's haunted stare is radically different from existing images which purport to be the bard. The warts and all images featured in a TV documentary called Death Masks due to be screened on the History Channel on September the 13th. Director Stuart Clark said, The results from this forensic examination are startling. They show strong evidence both forensically and historically that this 3D model may in fact be the way Shakespeare looked in life. Breakthroughs in computer imaging mean we may have to rewrite the history books on Shakespeare. Clark's team have also produced 3D likenesses of Napoleon, Julius Caesar, George Washington, and Abraham Lincoln. And the recreations are based on scans taken from death masks, and in some cases, masks made during life. 
The image of Napoleon, for example, is said to be significantly different from that which the French have become accustomed to, while the real face of Washington is nothing like his image on the dollar bill. 416-360-0740. and toll-free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, one 866 740-4740. Last call to the phones and your spine-tingling tales when The Conspiracy Show continues. My name is Richard Serrett. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. There's a chubacabra alert in the Puebla state of uh, Mexico. Shepherds there are up in our arms over a rash of beheadings inflicted on their goats, and many peoples are blaming the legendary predator known as the chubacabra. Over the past two months, more than 300 goats owned by shepherds in Puebla state have been decapitated by someone or something, and it hasn't yet been uh, tracked down. More on that later. Back to the phones and our spine-tingling tales. Hunter is in South Central Ontario. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Hunter. Good morning. Hi, how you doing, Richard? Very well, thank you. Listen, I had a couple of things I wanted to contribute to, uh, to this part of your show. Um, uh, coming from a place that you're apparently quite uh, familiar with, um, I, uh, have, I, I mentioned once to you on the phone that um, I have had uh, extraterrestrial experiences and as well as uh, para- paranormal experiences as well. Um, um, at, out on Oak Park Road under the high-tension wires <clears throat> back in the 1970s, I was uh, out parking with my girlfriend, and we experienced something that we, I, we've seen on TV, uh, this mentioned before, with, uh, with extraterrestrial experiences where you see something that looks like... Uh, uh, a couple of stars up in the heavens, and suddenly they'll start moving at really rapid uh, speeds, and they'll, um, you know, uh, they'll turn at really abrupt angles really quickly, and and uh, things like this. Uh, we actually um, experienced uh, seeing that, and the thing actually landed in a field, uh, the next field over from us. Uh, it was like kitty corner across uh, uh, in the next field. And, um, well, needless to say, we didn't stick around to see what was going to happen next. But um, as well, um, at the bottom of King George Road, there's a, a roadhouse. And I happened to be the only um, person in the bar. It was around twilight um, in, in sometime in October. Um, Sorry, King George Road as in Brantford? Yeah, unfortunately, you <laughs> had to mention that. <laughs> but anyways... It wasn't uh, Moose Renewski's, was it? No, it was uh, it's uh, uh, Cal- Callahan's. Okay, yeah. I happened to be the only person in the bar. There wasn't even a bartender in the bar at the time. It was around twilight in October, and I just happened to glance over at the uh, north-eastern um, corner of the cemetery there, and I saw... Uh, a specter um, walking 
in the cemetery as the sun was going down. Uh, it was a a woman in a white gown, just just like exactly like you see it depicted in the movies. My word, where where the feet weren't touching the ground and the white huh. flow, flowing gown. This now this is uh, this is the cemetery off of Charing Cross. Uh, no, this no? is this is uh, the one at the foot of uh, King George Road, where where North Park or where Park or what is it? Uh, where King George Road begins, anyways. Okay, a couple blocks north of the cemetery. The reason I want to mention this is um, you you mentioned religion a lot on your show, and I find religion to be myself personally uh, one thing in reality that I struggle with the most to try and understand. It just seems like the most, un- some of the things that are uh, mentioned in religion, in, in the Bible and that, seem to be the among, amongst the most unbelievable things in the world to, to you know, fathom. And uh, the reason I'm mentioning that is that having seen this specter, ghost, whatever you want to call it, um, gives gives me uh i don't know just put into perspective for me the fact that uh for me to have witnessed something that you don't normally see uh in your everyday um experiences uh kind of gives me the uh impression that um well, there there's maybe more to the reality that we see every day than, you know, what, you know. Oh, exactly. Uh, but Hunter, the, the the fact that you have experienced yeah. something of this on a supernatural order, whether we're talking about uh, uh, UFOs, which could be piloted by interdimensional entities, yeah. uh, the fact that you saw perhaps a spirit, yeah. Uh, to me, uh, that strengthens the argument for the existence of the supernatural, which includes, uh, you know, the, you know, a spirit world, which could include angels, demons, uh, and if you and if you know if you're following along and connecting the dots, that could ultimately lead to a supernatural uh, god. That's why I wanted to. That's why I wanted to mention it. Yes. Because it's r- really the only thing that uh, gives me the you know, the the power to believe that you know there really is something beyond what we do experience every day. Otherwise, I would have thought that religion was a load of bunk from from all the horrible things that I've witnessed in this world. And for me to see a ghost, well, that just tells me, well, that you know, look, kid, I mean, there really is something going on here well, be, as, beyond what you see every day, you know, just beyond what's black and white. Absolutely, Hunter. Well, as we were just talking about this 3D image of Shakespeare, as the bard himself said, there's more things in heaven and earth, Horatio. Let's, a uh, final call to Roy in Toronto. Good yeah. morning, Roy. Welcome Good to morning, The Conspiracy sir. Show. Hi. Yeah, the, the man that you did have on the, on the program before, he was talking about what going to happen in 2012. Correct. It, it sounds to me just the same like 2000 when they have the white 2K, when they were saying this going to happen, that going. I believe it's just the same they are saying in in the 2012 now. I don't think all those things that they saying going to be happening. Well, I hope you're right, Roy. Except in the case of Y2K. Uh, it was a, uh, supposedly going to happen as a result of sort of a, a man-made uh, problem built into computers mm-hmm. that the, you know, the operating systems of computers all over the world uh, wouldn't be able to differentiate uh, 
you know, when the year 2000 came up, uh, somehow it was going to cause some, you know, major glitch. But mm-hmm. but in 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 the case of the solar storms that we're being told about, uh, these have happened before. They happened in 1859. They happened in 1921. The only thing was back in 1859, of course, we didn't have this reliance on uh, electricity and, and the digital realm that we now find ourselves in. So... Um, but right now is man predicting all those things because they're just predicting just the same. But I don't think those things are going to happen. But well, Roy, I hope you're right. Yeah, I, I'm all right. I show sure of that. Okay. okay <laughs> I wish I had your your faith, uh, Roy. But um, uh, you know, certain NASA scientists and others. You know, we've certainly been steered wrong uh, in the wrong direction before by scientists, but. Uh, uh, a lot of scientists, a lot of astronomers talking about this real threat of a solar storm. Exactly what, what impact it's going to have? Well, we're all going to, uh, we're going to be walking on pins and needles for the next couple of years uh, to find out. Uh, do we have time for one more call? We've got somebody uh, lining up to call in. While we're waiting for uh, a Dan to field that call, let me just remind you what's coming up next week on the program. Victor Vigiani will be with us our dear friend from Exopolitics Canada, as we discuss uh, UFOs and UFO disclosure, which is a, is a huge issue, continues to be a huge issue. And uh, journalist Leslie Keene will be on the program. She'll talk about her new book, just published, in fact, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. And uh, Leslie, is uh, she's a hard-nosed investigative journalist, and again, she's making the serious case for further investigation of the UFO phenomenon. And uh, she'll be here. She's the director of the Coalition for Freedom of Information. And she says her sources propose that the ET hypothesis is actually a rational and logical explanation for 5% of UFO sightings. Well, you say 5%, that means 95% are hoaxes. Well, true enough, but consider this, 5%, 5% of what? Well, since 1947, there have been 150 million eyewitness reports of UFOs. 150 million. What's 5% of 150 million? It's about 7 million. 7 million legitimate sightings. That's uh, nothing to sneeze at. All right. I don't think we're going to have time to get to... uh, our final caller, so sorry for leaving you on the line. My thanks to uh, Dan Ellison for technical production. Frank Joseph, of course, for joining us tonight, the author of Atlantis in 2012. Hope you'll be with us next week in conversation with Victor Vigiani and investigative journalist Leslie Keene as we discuss UFO disclosure. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.